0: This is a presentation of the Trine Broadcasting Network, part of the Center for Sports Studies at Trine University. Learn more at trine.edu. The Humanities Symposia is a lecture series sponsored by the Department of Humanities and Communication at Trine University. It allows faculty to share their current research with both students and the general public. Our speaker today is Dr. Eric Goddard. Eric Goddard graduated from the University of Wisconsin-Madison with a PhD in Medieval European History. He teaches courses at Trine in History and Government. In the course of his research on the Medieval University of Paris, he had the opportunity to conduct research both in France and at the Vatican Secret Archives in Rome. The experience of researching in the Vatican Secret Archives is the focus of his presentation today. First, thanks so much for coming today. It's really, uh, it's really great to see you all. I thought, um, because you're not allowed to take a lot of pictures when you're in the Vatican Secret Archives, um, and um, so I wanted to start out by giving you a little bit of a vision of what, what sorts of sites you see inside the archives. Uh, this huge institution houses documents related to the history of the papacy and to the Catholic Church more generally. The archives are called secret. Uh, Not because people don't know about them, but because they are the property of the papacy. And access to them requires special papal permission. My own research focuses on the history of the University of Paris, located nearly 1,000 miles away from the Vatican. However, during the 1300s and 1400s, the period which I study, many of the most important sources for studying the University of Paris actually come from the Vatican archives. My first effort to gain access to these archives was something of an adventure in itself. As a third year graduate student, I arrived at the train station in Rome, uh, where my doctoral advisor had agreed to meet me and help me gain access to the archives for the first time. It's kind of an intimidating process. It's nice to have someone with you uh, to help you out. Uh, We ended up facing several obstacles. Uh, The first was time. Uh, By the time I disembarked from the train, with 100 pounds of luggage, and I'm literally not kidding. I had 100 pounds of luggage. I've since learned my lesson, travel light, definitely better. Uh, We had an hour to make it to my admission interview in the Vatican. By the time we had manhandled my luggage to the hotel and made our way to St. Peter's Square in the center of Rome, I was sweating through my suit in the 90-degree heat. As we entered through St. Anne's Gate, into Vatican City. Vatican City is located inside the city of Rome. It's like its own little country inside the city of Rome. As we entered through St. Anne's Gate into Vatican City, I learned about the second obstacle I would be facing, Swiss Guards. An hour of paperwork, I later learned, would have allowed me to enter Vatican City legally. But because of our short time frame, my advisor and I followed a somewhat different approach. Walk in beside me as I show my ID, my advisor said, confidently, like you know where you're going, but not too fast. Twenty seconds later, the Swiss guards were behind us, though I would not do this again, and I don't recommend that you attempt it. Finally, as I entered the archives themselves, I learned about the third obstacle. The admission interview with the head of the Vatican archives, which I was about to undergo, would be taking place entirely in Italian. I don't remember a great deal about the next few minutes. I certainly did not wow the Vatican prefect with my Italian skills. But it probably helped that the documents I was requesting permission to see were, by papal standards at least, not especially sensitive. I wanted to see applications for jobs in the church, which had been submitted to the Pope by scholars at the University of Paris in the 1300s and 1400s. If I had gone, for example, and wanted to see records from the papacy during World War II and the Holocaust or something like that, that might have been much more sensitive, much more difficult to get access to. Once I was admitted to the archives, a different sort of adventure began. The reading room in the archives was open each day for just four and a half hours, from 8.30 a.m. to 1 p.m. I would walk into Vatican City each day, showing my ID to the Swiss Guards, now I had an ID, Uh, Then I would check in at the archives, placing all of my belongings in a locker. Finally, I would proceed to the reading room where the actual labor took place. Um, Each day that the archives were open, I was allowed to request up to three items to see each day. I didn't have the chance to enter the places where the documents were stored myself. Instead, I would fill out a request, and the item I requested would be brought to me at a table in the reading room. I was also limited in what documents I could ask to see. When I entered the archives, I told the head of the archives what subject I was studying, and then I was pre-approved to view certain documents. If one day I decided to sit down and said, I wanna see the condemnation of Galileo or something like that, and requested that from the archives, I would have been denied. If I wanted to see something like that, I would have to go back to the, Vatican, uh, the head of the Vatican archives and, and make a case for why that was important to my research. Many of the documents in the Vatican archives are one-of-a-kind, priceless items. The particular documents that I was looking at were irreplaceable handwritten volumes more than 600 years old. In order to help preserve these documents for the future, the Vatican archives is in the process of digitizing many of its sources. Often, when I asked for a particular volume in the archives, I would be given a CD and sent to a computer terminal. In some cases, however, the digitization process was not yet complete, and I would be given the original volume itself to work with, which of course was quite a thrill. There were important ground rules in the archives. No pens were allowed, and all bags brought into the archives were subject to search. No food or drink was allowed in the reading room itself, but... Fortunately, there was a nice little cafe that was located right out in the courtyard, so if you got like too sleepy as you were transcribing documents, you could go out and get a coffee, which was very nice. In the reading room itself, workers regularly walked past to make sure that everything was proceeding properly, but there was also a high degree of trust and privilege. Although the volumes I was working with had been written before Columbus set sail for the New World, I was allowed to work with them directly, turning pages by hand, without even wearing protective gloves, which is something that kind of surprised me. They didn't even require that. When I was done with the volume I was working with, I actually closed the volume myself and carried it back up uh, to the desk in the archives. Uh, Each time I did this, I double-checked very carefully to make sure that my shoes were tied. Over the course of my graduate studies, I went back to the archives on three separate occasions, spending a total of about six months uh, working in Vatican City. Unlike Dan Brown, I discovered no secret plots or conspiracies, Uh, but I had the opportunity to participate in a scholarly adventure of a different sort, and today I'd like to share a couple aspects of that adventure with you. Um, I'll begin by giving you a more specific description of the documents that I went to the Vatican archives to see, and I'll talk about a project I'm involved in to make these sources accessible to a wider audience. Then I'll talk about why wider access to such sources might be useful by discussing three crucial insights from my own research that have emerged from studying these documents. Okay, so as I mentioned ab- uh, before, I use job applications submitted to the Pope uh, by, scholars in order, by scholars in order to study the University of Paris in the 1300s and 1400s. Uh, to get an idea of what these sources are like, it helps to look at one. Here's a sample. Based on appearance, it's possible to observe uh, several things about the document. Uh, First, it's obviously written by hand. Uh, The document dates from about 1400, about 50 years before the invention of the printing press. Uh, Second, and perhaps less obviously, uh, the document is written in Latin. Uh, This was the language used for all church documents, or at least almost all, and most other documents during the medieval period. Finally, the scribe clearly had frustrated artistic aspirations. Not that uncommon, actually. It may be disappointing for you to discover that this document actually has nothing to do with knights or dragons. If we look at a transcription and translation of another similar document, we can note several other characteristics. So this isn't the same document, but it's a similar one. So, at the risk, I don't want to put anybody to sleep here, but I'm just going to read the document through really quick and then talk about what we can observe from it. So this is a sample job application of the the sort that I study. So it says, from a group petition of the University of Paris, Nicholas Domicelli, a subdeacon from Rouen, a master of arts, licentia in civil law, and bachelor in canon law, requests a canonry with expectation of prebend, dignity, parsonage, or office, even if elective, with cure of souls or a major dignity, in the Bayou Cathedral. Notwithstanding that he already holds the parish Church of bermont in the Diocese of Rouen, assessed for the tithe at 17.5 pounds of tour, and an untaxed perpetual chaplaincy at the altar of the Blessed Virgin in the Collegiate Church of St. Paul in Saint-Denis in the Diocese of Paris, over which he is involved in litigation. Just sets your heart aflutter, doesn't it? Okay. First, as you can tell from my reading, the document is technical in nature. It has a lot of specific details about education and job holdings, but it's written in a kind of formulaic language. It doesn't, it doesn't really like kind of trip off the tongue naturally. This type of document is difficult to understand when you first encounter it. But once you work with it, this type of source for a while, you become used to it. Second, although it's probably not immediately apparent because of the technical language, the central idea of this text is a request for a job. It's not the tip- typical job application that you'd make today, but this guy is, is requesting a job. That's the significance of that canonry with expectation of prebend. That's a position in the church. Um, It was very common for medieval university students to either hold positions in the church while they were still students, a type of medieval work-study, or to use their university degrees to obtain such positions after they had graduated. A final thing that you'll... Oops, falling mouse... A final thing that you'll note about this document is that it focuses on facts rather than feelings. In this uh, second slide here, I've highlighted in red all the material that relates to what the applicant was thinking or feeling when he submitted his application. That's right. There's nothing there. Uh, Many people are most naturally interested in historical sources that appeal to the emotions or that reveal the thoughts and beliefs of people in the past. This type of source clearly does none of these things, at least not directly. But I'd like to highlight three reasons why historians of medieval universities like myself find them very interesting nonetheless. The first reason for interest is that although they are short, these sources actually contain a lot of specific information about the scholars submitting the application. First, it tells us where the scholar was studying. In this case, uh, that is Paris, one of six major universities in France during the period. Second, it tells us what disciplines the scholar had studied and what degrees he had earned. In this case, uh, this particular individual had the highest degree available in the lower faculty of arts, had achieved a master's degree in arts, and then had moved on to law school, earning a bachelor's degree in canon law. Canon law is the law of the church, as well as a licentiate or a license, which is between a bachelor's degree and a doctorate in uh, civil law. uh, um, Second, or excuse me, uh, finally, we learn three additional pieces related to, uh, three additional pieces of information related to geography. We already know that he studied at Paris. We learn now that he was from the city of Rouen. We also learned what church positions he already held, a very small chapel uh, near Paris, that's the chapel of Saint-Denis, as well as a local church further to the north. We learned finally that he was seeking a position in a much bigger church to the west, a position that would bring him greater income. That's the church in Bayeux that he's seeking. All this information uh, comes from a, on a specific individual from this very brief source. A second reason that historians of medieval universities focus on this type of source is that for the vast majority of scholars at medieval universities, few other detailed sources of information exist. Although the first universities were founded in Europe around 1200, even lists of which students enrolled at universities were not kept until 1500 in general. These sources might not tell us all that we would like to know about medieval university students, but they are far better than nothing. When I think of historical sources about university students, I'm reminded uh, of the quote by Erasmus. Um, He said, uh, in the country of the blind, uh, the one-eyed man is king. And I kind of think of these sources as being the one-eyed man. They're not perfect, but they still tell us a lot more uh, than, uh, uh, than having nothing would. A third reason that these sources are of interest is that they survive in great numbers. Here I have to make a distinction. The original applications were written on slips of paper, like this one, and only a very few of these survive. However, when these requests were received and approved, they were copied into large registers in the papal archives. Here's a a photo of one leaf from one of these registers, which is in the process of restoration. While some of these volumes have been lost or damaged, here's an example of a damaged page from one of the volumes, hundreds of volumes still survive from the 1300s and 1400s, and they contain tens of thousands of job applications from university scholars and other individuals. Nevertheless, despite the information that these sources contain, very few people actually use them to study university scholars because they are so difficult to access. There are a few reasons for this. First, with some exceptions, these sources are not published anywhere. This means that if you want to get access to the information in these documents, you have to go and work with the original manuscripts in the Vatican, or find some of the images of those manuscripts that are held on CDs at some other libraries. Second, these volumes don't have an effective table of contents. This means that if you're looking for a letter related to a specific individual, you have little choice but to search through dozens or even hundreds of volumes, page by page, until you find the one letter you're looking for. This kind of search requires a willingness to invest time and a level of perseverance that few people possess. It's a bit like Horton uh, searching flower after flower for the one blossom on which the Who's lived or like searching for a needle in a massive, massive haystack. Finally, as mentioned before, these letters are written in a kind of formulaic Latin that can be difficult to read and understand if you're not used to it, not least because it's written by hand and sometimes the handwriting can be difficult. I remember the first time I worked with these documents laboring hours just to read a few words. But now, after years of practice, the process comes much more easily. These obstacles are formidable, but the information these sources contain would be of great use to scholars studying medieval universities if they had a way to access them more conveniently. Providing such access for documents related to the University of Paris in particular is the driving goal of a publishing project on which I serve as co-editor with my former dissertation advisor. The goal of this project is to publish and edit all the job applications in the Vatican archives from scholars at the University of Paris between 1316 and 1394. Our basic approach in this project aims to address each of the issues of access that I identified above. First, we go through all the volumes of applications looking for all the letters that relate to Parisian scholars. This means going through hundreds of volumes of documents. But because we're looking for thousands of different individuals, rather than just one, the search is much more worthwhile. Second, we transcribe the handwritten Latin so that scholars can work from a convenient printed text. So this is what uh, a page from the finished edition would look like. It's still in Latin, so uh, you still have to be able to understand what the Latin says, uh, but it's much easier than working from the handwritten version from the archives. Uh, Finally, we provide explanatory notes and additional references for scholars that the volume contains, which help modern scholars use the documents more easily. So for each of the individuals that appears in the document, there'll be footnotes that contain additional references to other books or additional information about their careers. The finished product is a volume containing printed editions of these job applications where people can access in minutes information that would have taken months to find and decipher themselves in the papal archives. The span of this project uh, covers nearly a century, uh, 1316 to 1394, but is divided up into three different sections. I assisted at the end of the production of Volume 1, which was published in 2002. I became a co-editor for the second volume, published in 2004, and in the latest volume, um, in t- published in 2012, I played a, a leading role in producing the volume. This latest volume has taken longer than previous volumes to produce because, because it's so big. It, uh, the final volume runs to about 1,400 pages and it contains more than 10,000 letters uh, from 2,000 different scholars. Okay, that's perhaps more information than you wanted about that. But it's worth asking a question at this point that may have already occurred to you. We've seen a little sample of what these job applications are like, and at this point you might be asking, what use are the facts that are contained in this sort of job application? What sorts of insights can you actually arrive at uh, based on this sort of source? Uh, That's a fair question, and what I'd like to do uh, is to briefly discuss examples of three different insights that I've gained uh, by studying this type of document to give you a little bit of an idea of what you can learn uh, with this sort of source. Uh, The first insight is that the date of a document can make all the difference in the world. One important thing about medieval job applications is that the earlier the date you submitted them, the better the possibility that you would get a job. It's It's kind of like taking tickets at the deli counter. The person with the earliest ticket gets served first. One day I was working with a document containing a whole group of applications from Parisian scholars. The largest group of petitions ever submitted. However, when I looked at the manuscript, I realized that the date usually given to these applications at the bottom of the page, this is actually a date right here, and that was the date that had usually been ascribed to all of this whole big group of uh, Parisian job applications. But what I noticed was that that was actually a mistake. Um, if you look up in the margin on the upper right-hand side you'll see that there's an, a, a marginal reference and that actually indicates another date there's another date that's kind of wedged right in here right in the middle of the manuscript and it turns out that that's actually the correct date for uh, the job applications that I was looking at. Now that might seem like a really small detail to notice it seems uh, insignificant but it actually had a great impact. The new date showed that that in the competition for university positions with other university scholars, Parisian students were at the very front of the line, rather than being a little ways back. This showed that the Pope was trying to show them special favor and trying to win their political support. On the basis of that small correction, which seems pretty minor, I was able to offer a reinterpretation of the relationship between French universities and the papacy. The second insight I've arrived at is that there is often a difference between words and deeds when it comes to political action. In order to understand this insight, we need to learn about the political situation in the period between 1378 and 1418. During this period, called the Great Schism, there were two and occasionally three popes fighting for recognition in the Western Church. This put scholars in a very difficult position. They needed the jobs offered by the popes in order to further their careers, but applying to the pope for a job was the equivalent of giving that pope your support. In the year 1394, scholars faced a huge choice. The king of France told members of the university not to submit their job applications to the pope because France was trying to get the pope to resign in order to resolve the division in the church. University scholars publicly agreed with this policy, and they made a big show of not submitting their job applications to the Pope. Later, King Charles VI of France publicly praised the scholars in 1400. He said, "In their great favor, to pers- in their great fervor, excuse me, to pursue union in the Church, they, that is, Parisian scholars, chose not to seek any graces, that is, jobs, from Benedict when he became Pope." So that they might not be less motivated to pursue union. So he's essentially saying, good job guys, you put, your, uh, you put the good of the church over your own selfish interest, you didn't, you didn't pursue jobs when you could have. However, I learned in my research that there was a huge difference between what scholars said they were doing and what they actually did in fact. By looking at all the job applications submitted by Parisian scholars, I was able to see whether scholars were following through on their public commitment not to seek jobs. The bottom line is that most of them weren't. Uh, Compared with earlier job applications in 1378, the number of applications in 1394 declined by only about 20%. In fact, most scholars continued to submit job applications to the Pope at the very time they claimed not to be doing so. Moreover, there was a very interesting correlation between job applications and political speech. Those who received jobs from the papacy stopped criticizing the Pope. The most famous example of this is Pierre Dailly. He spoke out boldly against the Pope during the initial period of the schism, but became very quiet after receiving a high-paying church office. The Pope reportedly claimed to have silenced a fire-breathing dragon by feeding him a lucrative church position. And he was clearly referring uh, to Pierre Dailly. Meanwhile, the scholars who really had foregone job applications to the Pope often became the Pope's greatest critics. Taken together, I learned it was crucial in understanding university scholars to take not only their words, but also their actions into account. The third and final insight that I've come to in my research is that historical conflicts often have unexpected consequences. During the period of the Great Schism, there was controversy, not only over who should be the Pope, but over what powers the Pope should have. Specifically, there was a big debate over whether the Pope should have the power to appoint to church positions in local areas. During the Great Schism, scholars at the University of Paris altered their political positions regularly. Sometimes they pursued their short-term financial interests and sought jobs in the church. Sometimes they sacrificed their political interests and pursued union in the church. By manipulating these two impulses, like a sailor tacking in a sailboat, the French monarchy, the French king, managed to use the momentum and authority provided by Parisian scholars to arrive at a third destination that scholars had never intended to head towards. Namely, royal control over hiring in the French church. While union in the church was restored in 1418, the system of papal hiring in the church, on which university scholars had previously relied, was virtually eliminated. As a result, scholars became dependent on the state for their financial support and lost much of their political independence. This led to a major decline in the power and influence of the university. Conducting research in the Vatican secret archives and helping to shed light on the importance of money and politics at medieval universities has been one of the highlights of my professional career. I did encounter some other adventures in the archives, uh, most notably on my trip in uh, April of 2005, almost just a couple of days after I arrived, John Paul II uh, passed away. And basically everything in the city of Rome and the Vatican uh, came to a standstill for about uh, 10 days, and the whole place was mobbed by pilgrims and well-wishers and television cameras. It was like the center of world attention uh, for that period of time, so it was kind of, kind of a wild time to be there. Um, I hope that this presentation has given you a little insight into the institution of the Vatican Secret Archives and my research, and I would welcome any questions that you might have. Thank you very much.